Uh, we are continuing our sermon series in the book of Exodus. So if you will, turn with me to chapter 19. We're going we're gonna to look at chapter 19 and chapter 20. Uh, about, I don't know, maybe 16 years ago, I began to pursue a young lady named Lisa. Okay, this is, this is one of those good stories that ends in marriage. Okay, but just bear with me for a sec, okay? And so we were friends, and I began to kind of have some feelings for her. And so I decided that the best course of action, as it relates to me uh, kind of becoming her boyfriend, would be like a sneak attack, okay? I don't recommend this, but this is just kind of how it played out. So, so one day, I just kind of walked into her house that she lived in with a bunch of girls, and I just put it all on the line. She, she had no idea. I was like, I like you. I want to date you. I mean, I kind of went... It kind of went dark for a while. I might have said, I I love you. I want to marry you. I'm not exactly sure what I said, but I put it all on the line. I went all in. And then she said, thank you. And then I left. (laughs) True story. And so for about two weeks, I I waited in that limbo. Um, She was out of my league. I was a gamble. And so she had to really consider it. Now, there's a word for... How in, when I was in college, what, what, what was going on there? There's a, there's a sort of word to explain what we were doing. And we were having a DTR. Is that still a thing? That's, is, that, is that still a... Sorry, my, my thing keeps falling on. All right, a DTR stands for, and I can say this because the youth were thinking about relationships. Uh, a DTR stands for defining the relationship. And that's what we were doing. My hopes were that we would redefine a friendship and define it into something a little bit more to what I wanted. Now, this fall, this fall, we're studying the book of Exodus. And last week, if you might remember, we followed, uh, two weeks ago, finally, Israel's out of Egypt and they're, they're freed from slavery and they're in the wilderness marching towards Sinai. And they're going to Sinai because God promised that something would happen at Sinai back in chapter 3. If you go, you might remember God, uh, God meets Moses in a burning bush. He's on a mountain. And then we read this in verse 12. God said these words to Moses. I'm going to be with you. And this will be a sign for you that I have sent to you, to, to, to God's people down in Egypt. When you have brought the people out of Egypt... You shall serve or you shall worship me on this mountain. So Moses has accomplished phase one of the program, right? God's people are freed, phase one complete. Now it's phase two. And now they've arrived at the foot of a mountain, Mount Sinai, to which God promised that they would do, that they would gather once again after they were delivered, they would gather to serve and worship And now begins phase two of God's program with his people. And in phase two, God wants to have a DTR with his people. He wants to define the relationship. He wants to say, these are the boundaries. This is what it's going to look like that you're my people. So the big idea is simply this. Last week, it was a mouthful. You're welcome this week. It's much Shorter. All right. And it's that God frees his people to bring them to himself. 
Now, this narrative is uh, sort of uh, broken down in three sections. And it really kind of flows uh, and is broken down by Moses going up and down the mountain three times. But I want to ask three questions and then answer three questions as this narrative kind of unfolds. And these questions are as follows. So first, I want to ask, who are God's freed people? It's sort of the question of identity. Second, what are their responsibilities? That's the question of worship. And then third, how is it that they're to fulfill the requirements of this new relationship? And that's going to be the promise of a provision. So three questions. We're going to start with the first question, which is, who are God's people? Turn with me to Exodus 19, verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. And how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We'll stop there. So verse three, Moses goes up on the mountain for the first time. And then Moses comes down and explains all that God had told him up on that mountain. And so let's look at it. In verse 5, God begins to kind of speak. He begins to define the relationship. And in verse 5, we read a very important word. Covenant. God is going to establish his relationship in the form of a covenant. Which basically is a form of a DTR. I mean, it's an intense DTR. But it's a DTR. It's, it's a defining of the relationship. It's saying, this is, this is, it's a, it's a way of defining a relationship between two people or kind of two types of people. And in the context of our story, the two people are God and God's people. Well, God begins to speak in verse three and he reminds his people all that he did to rescue them in Egypt. And did you notice in verse three the type of kind of poetic imagery? He uses to describe what he did back in Egypt. He bore them on eagles' wings and then brought Israel to himself. It's striking, isn't it? It's beautiful. In many ways, it's so striking and beautiful that other authors are going to steal it. All right? So Isaiah, he uses the same language in Isaiah 40. And then if you go to Revelation 12, the last time it's used, there's a scene in in Revelation 12, the serpent, right? That great foe, Satan, is attacking the church, the seed of the woman. And we read that God provides a great eagle 
so that she might fly away from the serpent. So this this imagery, this image of this eagle, it's of God swooping down and gathering up his people and flying away. That's how God explains and kind of describes what he did for them just a few months earlier when he delivered them out from under the bondage of Egypt. And then in verse 5, we see, in part, conditions and obligations of this covenant. Right? We read, now, therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be. And then we're going to see three kind of identities. And we're going to get to them in a moment. But, but let me just kind of say, um, we, we might not think about it this way, but, but what God's about to do in setting his identity on his people is utterly countercultural. Right now, our culture basically says your identity, who you are as a human, it is determined inward. You get to determine who you are based on your feelings, based on your, what, you're, what you like, what you don't like. It is a subjective thing that you can decide and create. This is who I am. Right? We even do this down to the pronouns we use. And yet God here is saying, that we don't just get to subjectively decide who we are, but he is going to set his objective identity on his people. He gets to tell his people who they are. And look at it. It comes in three parts. Verse 5, treasured possessions. Verse 6, a kingdom of priests. And then thirdly, they are a holy nation. So I want to look at these. And we'll, we'll, we'll spend, I think, the most time in the first God tells his people that they are a treasured possession, right? They are his possession, and they're not just any old possession. They are treasured. I really do think that, that all of us, all of humanity, we want to be treasured. I mean, if you just think about our behaviors, how our behaviors kind of work, our behaviors are such that we do certain things and we don't do certain things. I think because we want to be treasured. So we might dress a certain way in order to garner some attention. Why? Because we want this people group or, or those people to treasure us. Or, or we work really hard in school, or we work really hard at our work, or we work really hard in the home, or we work really hard in a sport. Why? Because we want our coach or our spouse or our boss to, to affirm us and treasure us. I, I heard randomly it was a, a musician, John Legend, was talking about that, that why he still does music and why he loves performing is that when he was eight years old, he performed in his church and he got so much affirmation that he's been chasing it ever since. Basically, what the musician John Legend is saying is that he wants to be treasured. And so he works so hard at crafting songs so that others would treasure him. Isn't that also how um, sometimes what our conflict is all about? We're frustrated, we're angry, but those are just symptoms of a deeper desire to be treasured. We wanted to be treasured. We were working hard and we don't feel like we're treasured. And so it comes out in conflict and anger and frustration. We all want to be treasured. And I think there's a reason for it. 
I think one of the reasons is that we were made to be treasured. But the problem is we look in all of the wrong places. And here God reminds us where we should look. We shouldn't look inward. We shouldn't even look out. We should look up. Right? Just like in Christ alone, upward I look and see him there. That's what, Jesus, what, that's what God is saying here. He said, look up. I am setting the, your identity on you. And you are my treasured possession. Not because what Israel could offer God. They are small, they are weak, they are not that cool or popular, right? That's not why. God just says, you're my possession, and you're not just any old possession. You are my treasured possession. God has at his disposal the wealth and treasure that we can't even fathom, right? He literally, the universe is his, everything is his. Like his treasure is just greater than smogs. And yet he says, in the midst of all that treasure, humanity in general, but particularly his people, they are his treasured possession. Do you know the freedom of that? Do you know the freedom of that? Because we live in a broken world, and one of the the sort of symptoms of living in a broken world is that we will always want to be treasured, and the world will always fail us. Your spouse will always fail you. Your boss will always fail you. Children will always want to be treasured. That's why they, uh, my children always are like, Daddy, 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 look at me, look at me. What are they saying? They're saying, look at me, treasure me. And though every parent wants to treasure their children, we will never fully and truly and perfectly treasure our children as they ought to be treasured. And so how this is so freeing is that if, if we so want to be treasured, what, we're going to do at least one of two things. We're either going to be a slave to other people, always doing things in order for them to treasure us. That's Egypt. Or we're always going to be dissatisfied. That's the wilderness. But here there's freedom. There's freedom to remember that we are, by our very nature, treasured just because God sets that identity on us. And so we don't need to manipulate others into getting treasured because we have the wealth of God who treasured us. We don't have to demand that we're treasured or we don't have to grumble when we're not feeling treasured because at the end of the day, a far superior God has set his affections and treasure on us. Well, that's the first thing. He says that we are a treasured possession, but then next he says that you, we are a holy nation. Now, now, in some ways, the rest of the book of Exodus is going to flesh out this whole idea of holiness and uh, they as a holy nation. So I'm not going to get too deep into that, but basically what this means is that Israel is going to be set apart to be devoted to God, right? Those two things are both important. They are set apart to be devoted to God. That's the idea of them being a holy nation. And then lastly, God tells his people that they are to be a kingdom of priests. Now, later on, God is going to institute a priestly line. Look at the language. Look at the text. Look at verse 6. This is not saying that you are going to be a a people and you're going to have some priests. That's not what it says. 
they are going to be a kingdom of priests. Which means that what they're going to do, their, their purpose, their mission as a people, as a church, is they are supposed to, in a priestly-like way, display the character and goodness and word of God to the nations. They are, as a, as a body, as a, as a people, they are to mediate God's goodness, his grace, to the nations. That's what it means that they are called to be a priestly nation, a kingdom of priests. So, so we can kind of tie these identities together in a simple sentence. God possesses his people as his treasure, setting them apart so they can be devoted to him and display his goodness and character to the nations. Let me just say this again. So well, as it relates to God's covenant that he's putting on them, the identity that he's giving them. He's saying, I am, you are going to be my treasured possessions. I'm going to set you apart so you can devote yourselves to me in worship so that you, in all that you do, can display my goodness and character to the nations. Now, there are a lot of differences between Israel and the church, but let me just say, doesn't that sound eerily similar to the church? That we are called as God's treasured possession, set apart, devoted to God, that we might display his character to the nations. Isn't that the mission of the church? Well, I don't think it's any coincidence why Peter connects these two. Flip, flip over. I want you to see this. Flip over to 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter, the apostle Peter, um, he... The, the Apostle Peter, uh, he, he, he takes this very language of Exodus chapter 19, 5 and 6, and he applies it to the church. Peter, if you remember in chapter 1, he calls uh, the, the, the people he's writing to, these various churches, he calls them exiles, right? He connects even their identity to the Exodus and the future exile. And then we read this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, a treasured possession, that you might declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Do you see what Peter's doing here? Peter's point is simply this. Israel, being called out of the darkness of Egypt into the light of Sinai, is like, in a smaller way, the church being called out of the darkness of sin into the light of his beloved son, And Peter makes that connection for us. And the purpose, just like Israel's purpose back at Sinai, the purpose is still binding for the church, right? That we might proclaim the excellencies of him, that we might display his majesty, that we might together collectively and us individually, we might gossip about God. Well, after this amazing thing that Moses hears, that God tells him on the mountain, Moses marches down, which is about a one or two day trip. And he delivers this sort of DTR, doesn't he, right? Look at verse eight. And all the people answer together in unison, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now, it's a bit naive. It's a bit rash. They don't even know the obligations of the covenant yet. We're going to get, see that in chapter 20, and then actually pretty much up to 24. They have no idea what God's going to call them to do or be. They just go, I like this whole treasured possession bit. We'll do everything you tell us. And I think there's a, there's a, there's a genuineness to, to that. 
But what are the stipulations or what are the responsibilities of this covenant, this covenant that we call the Mosaic Covenant? Well, in, in, in large part, we see it in chapters 20 through 24, but in its kind of like summary form, we see it in chapter 20. So, so t- turn with me to chapter 20. We're going to skip this middle section. We're going to be back. And we're going to answer this second question, which is, what are the roles and responsibilities for God's people in light of this covenant that God makes with his people? What are the responsibilities? So look at chapter 20. You all know this. This is the Ten Commandments, right? I wish I could speak like Charlton Heston, but you'll have to just interpret it into your own head. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the sea. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I am the Lord your God and a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You shall, or your sons, or your daughters, or your male servants, or your female servants, or your livestock, or your sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, that your days, that your days may be long in the, land of, uh, in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. We'll stop there. These are the Ten Commandments. You guys know them. Some of you probably have memorized them. But really, these are sort of umbrella uh, obligations for the Mosaic Covenant. More are going to come later. We'll see that, Lord willing, next uh, week. But these are sort of the categories of the obligations that God has set forth and put on his people in light of the Mosaic Covenant. So there in verse 2, you'll see that this is sort of a preamble, right? It's a preamble to this, what's about to come. And then in verse 3, we begin. You shall have no other gods before me, right? Remember, this is, this is a DTR, right? And God is basically saying, right, and we see this here, I am jealous, you're in a relationship with me, you can't cheat on me, I can't just be your favorite God, I am your only God. And then the next commandment is like it, it also sort of involves worship. We are to worship God, I think what basically he's saying is we ought to worship God in the ways that he likes. I don't think this is talking about like, you should never watch like The Chosen, if you guys are like into that, if you know that show. I don't think that's what's going on. 
I think it's saying that God has, God is and will explain how he is to worship. Don't do it through superstitions like a talisman. Don't, don't use these sort of thing and thinking that you're going to get something from God. No, 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 no. Worship God in a way that he prescribes in his word. Third, they're not to take the Lord, uh, their God in his name in vain, which I think basically isn't just saying, you know, you know, saying G-O-D or something. I think it's more than that, okay? Because Jesus even later on will say, don't swear by Jerusalem. So I think the principle here is don't say one thing and then, you know, put your arm behind your back and cross your fingers and just say, yeah, technicality, I crossed my fingers. Don't do that. Fourth, keep the Sabbath. So work six days and then on, this, on, this, on Saturday, do not work. God rested on the seventh day. So they are called to rest and just trust in God as their creator and provider. Fifth, that they honor their father. Um, we're to honor our fathers and mothers. And then it speeds up. Did you notice this? It just kind of speeds up and there's no kind of qualifications. It's just like, okay, these kind of go without saying. So don't, uh, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness. And finally, do not covet. Now, but before we kind of get into this, and I want to look at this actually together, not just apart, you might be wondering, do we have to still obey the Ten Commandments? Have you ever thought about this? Well, let me, let me give you the really simple answer. No and yes. Okay, moving on. So no, this is the Mosaic Covenant. And we know in Hebrews chapter 8 and chapter 9 that the new covenant inaugurated by Jesus and his spilled blood, it inaugurates a new covenant, a better covenant. It fulfills the Mosaic Covenant. So in that sense, no, the Mosaic Covenant is finished. Yet. If you just look at the Ten Commandments, you'll notice that pretty much all of them are actually pulled into the New Covenant, okay? They are a display of God's unending character. And so we, too, these sort of commands are still binding on us as a church. Except for one kind of uh, exception, which is the Sabbath. So the Sabbath, I think you, if you go to Hebrews 4, I think it's clearly and most simply read as that we don't have to rest. I think the principle is there. We need to rest. We need to rest in Jesus. That's a good thing. You should not work every single day. But I think the whole idea of, oh yeah, just uh, we don't have to rest on Saturday or we were to take a Sabbath on Saturday. I think that is fulfilled in Jesus. And now we actually worship on resurrection day, which is Sunday. So we don't have to obey the Mosaic law, but, but we largely have to. But now, another thing I want to just point out as it relates to this is that Jesus actually takes the Ten Commandments when he's relating to the Pharisees in the, in the Gospels, and he sort of helpfully interprets them. Have you ever noticed this? What, what Jesus does? Jesus says, you have heard it said, do not murder. And he's talking to the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the religious leaders. And the Pharisees have a sort of legalistic view, right, of following the rules, following the law following the Ten Commandments. And so he says, you have heard it said, do not murder. Well, I tell you, if you have anger in your heart, you've murdered someone. Jesus goes on to say, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say that if you've lusted after someone, you have committed adultery. Now, what's going on here? Is Jesus kind of like stretching the Ten Commandments? I don't think so. 
I mean, just look at the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are built actually on a structure, multiple structures. But one of them is, and this is why Jesus says that the greatest commandment is to love your God and love your neighbor, right? Two things, like the Ten Commandments can be divided up, verses 1 through 4 in our relationship with God, and then um, 5 through 10 in our relationship to each other. But there's another way that the author puts them together. Structurally speaking, the Ten Commandments are a chiasm, all right? And a chiasm is just a Hebrew poetic device used in order to structure a uh, kind of a section together. And it basically works like an inverted pyramid, all right? And so here it's A-A-B-B-C-C. Let me just point it out. Commandments 1 and 2 are about your thoughts, your desires, about worship. Commandment 3 involves our words. Then commandment four, our deeds. Then commandments five and eight, once again, involve our deeds. Then commandment nine involves our words. And then commandment 10 involves our thoughts and deeds. You guys see that? Okay, so maybe, maybe just me, but I just grew up just assuming, oh, the Ten Commandments are all about deeds. It's all about just doing this, following the law in that traditional sense. These are just rules. It's not exactly right. And so Jesus, when he actually is interpreting it, he's not just interpreting them as no one has interpreted them before. No, embedded in the Ten Commandments are words, deeds, thoughts. So putting it all together, what God is saying is, with all of your mind, with all of your words, with all of your thoughts, with all of your worship, with all of your behavior, with the completeness of who you are as my people, you are to worship me. There is a completeness to this. This is why this is an umbrella kind of uh, categories of things that they're to follow, right? All of Israel, not just these behaviors, that would be easy. No, all of, all of them, from their mind to their thoughts, to their desires, to their words, to their deeds. All of it, they are called to obey God and follow God as it relates to the obligations of the Mosaic Covenant. See why Jesus gets so annoyed at the Pharisees? They, they try to skirt this on a technicality. Oh, I just, you know, I, uh, you know, I, 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 I technically told the truth, right? That, that's what they're doing. And he's saying, you missed the whole point of the Ten Commandments. The whole point of the Ten Commandments was that as it relates to this new defining relationship that God was entering with his people, he was saying, with all that you have and that all that you are and all of your thoughts and all of your behaviors, they are God's and God's alone. That's the point. So they couldn't get out on a technical on a, on a kind of a technical technicality, they were his people. And that's God's demand on his people. So, so going back to verse 8, when they say, all that you do, I'm gonna, we will follow. I mean, if Israel at that point has a time machine, they're going back and saying, whoops. With, with, with our thoughts and our words and our deeds. I mean, it's one thing to say, okay, yeah, do not steal. I'm like, okay, maybe we could do that. But your thoughts, your desires, your words, I mean, they're, to use the kind of a theological technical term, right? There ain't no way they're going to be able to keep up their side of this relationship, this side of the covenant. There ain't no way. I mean, we're going to read 14 chapters. They break nearly all of them, okay? 
It just takes 14 chapters. They're at Sinai for about 11 months. It does not take long for them to break most of them. So here's the amazing thing. The amazing thing is that in the midst of God's calling on them, he puts his identity on them, and then he says, this is who you're called to be. This is how you're supposed to image. In between sandwiched in that little kind of that, the covenant, the, the defining of the relationship, is this amazing provision that God gives that many people just kind of don't see. And it's in verses 9 through 25. And it will answer our third question. The question is, how is it that they can fulfill this covenant? How can they fulfill the requirements of this relationship? God on Mount Sinai, he says, this is who you are. That's kind of his saying, these are my public vows to you, Israel. You are my treasured possession. You are a kingdom of priests. You are a holy nation. That's God. Think of it like a marriage, right? Remember, this is a, defining the relationship, only it's even more intense than this. This is like a marriage ceremony. And God says, this is who you are. And then he says, now this is what you're supposed to say. You're supposed to say, with all that I have and all that I have I, and all my thoughts, I, I give to you, Lord. Now, anyone who's gone to a wedding ceremony recently knows that, that the, the wedding vows we take are lofty. So how can they fulfill them? Well, I'm not going to read it, but the answer is in verse 9 to 25. So look at, look at verse 9. Verse 9, God says that he's coming down. He's coming down to sort of meet with his people. And it is described as terrifying, right? You guys see that? Right? The mountain's going to be shaking. There's going to be thunder. You don't want anywhere near it. Here, I'll I'll read right after the Ten Commandments, actually. We get another description of this. Look at verse 18. I'll read this to give you a flavor of how terrifying it is for God's people to meet with God. Verse 18. Now, when the people saw the thunder and all the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking and the people were afraid and trembling and they stood far off. Just imagine Mount Rainier like that. You sitting at the foot of it and it's like that. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far away while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So God tells his people, don't get anywhere near me or you're going to die. Now, what's going on here? Well, it's simply this. God's people here are living in a post-Genesis 3 world. So there is sin. They are sinners. They are unclean. They are defiled. They are broken. They are grumblers. And so unclean cannot be in the presence of clean because God is perfect and clean and holy. And so here you have God in all of his holiness saying, I'm coming down to meet with you. You can't get anywhere near me because you're going to die. Because that's what happens when, when holiness, true, unfettered holiness meets, or holy, holiness meets unholiness. And so he says, don't go anywhere near, right? This is not like Adam walking 
with God in the cool of the night. We don't live in that world anymore. This is not the Garden of Eden. Now, God's people can't walk with God. But as you see, there's a plan. And there is a provision. Uh, years ago, I think I was in sixth grade, my family took the, you know, the, the every, I feel like American takes this kind of pilgrimage to Washington, D.C. to see all the sights, bells and whistles, all the museums, those sorts of things. So my family, sixth grade, we went to Washington, D.C. And we, we saw all the really cool things, and it was fantastic. But one of the things we wanted to see was the White House. So now just imagine the Brucker family. We're nobodies, right? That's, that shouldn't be the shocking part of the story, okay? We're, we're nobodies. Imagine us driving up to the gate of the White House and saying, the Bruckers are here. We're here to see the Clintons. They were the presidents. At the, he was the president at the time, right? Just imagine that. I mean, literally the guard is going to go, no, you're not. Who are you? I don't know you. I mean, they might, at best case, laugh. Worst case, they'd point their gun at me and say, get off the property, right? Turn back. So what we need, if you imagine the Bruckers wanting to see the Clintons or go into the White House, we need a mediator. Now, luckily for us, we did. Our neighbor was an elected congressman. And so we called him up, and he then called the White House and said, the Bruckers are coming on this day. And so when we got to the gate, we dropped a name, right? And that's how we got in. You needed a mediator. Because you have the, the, the White House, which is, you know, uncommon. It's holy in that sense, right? And then you've got us. And in order to bridge the gap between those two realities, you need a mediator. Someone who will advocate for you. Someone who will stand in the gap. Do you see that? That's what we have in Moses. God tells Moses, come up the mountain, right? This is not Moses' great idea. Hey, I'm just going to come up to the mountain and talk to you. No, God says, you can come and you alone come up. And having come up, Moses being the mediator between God and the people of God, he says, now go back down and look at what he says. He says, go back down and I want you to do something. Verse 10. I want you to consecrate God's people, right? Sanctify them, purify them, right? They got to wash their clothes. They have to abstain from from sexual relations. They can't go near or have even animals go near the mountain until the third day when God will approach them, but still at a distance, right? They can approach God, but not fully, just partially. This is the provision God provides, He provides a mediator between God and his holiness and God's people and their unholiness. And he says that that mediator is going to go down and purify the people. But just look at the purification. It's all external, isn't it? It's all partial. Don't go near the mountain, right? You know, uh, rinse your clothes with tide, right? No hokey pokey. it's, It's all external. And yet when we go to the Ten Commandments, it's not just external. It's not just rules. It's also internal. It's your thoughts, your deeds, your desires. So how in the world, how in the world can God's people then ultimately be in God's presence? Well, here, Moses, who stands as a true mediator between God and man, but he's not 
the ultimate. He's not even the greatest. He can only partially mediate God's presence, right? He says, you can come to the foot of the mountain, but no closer. Only I can go up. I mean, later later on, you're going to see the priests. Some of the priests can go a little ways up the mountain. And and you get the sense that that the very um, kind of um, decorating of the temple is, you know, is just like the mountain, right? You've got the Holy of Holies, then you've got the, then you've got the inner court, then you've got the outer court. Moses can go up, but no one else can go up. Moses consecrates God's people, but only partially, only externally. And it stokes in us a desire in our sin for a greater mediator, doesn't it? And you know where I'm going with this, right? It's where the New Testament goes with it. I'm stealing New Testament theology because the greater than Moses mere is Jesus Christ. He is a meteor between God and his holiness and us in our sin. And how does he purify us? How does he consecrate us? He does it by defiling himself. Isn't that the most amazing part of it? Moses doesn't defile himself in that sense, but God's son would when he took on our sin on the cross. You see, Jesus walked up a mountain too. It was a mountain called Calvary. And he was in God's presence. He being the very nature of God and being in the very nature of humanity, he stood perfectly in the gap, perfectly as our mediator, advocating for us as he took on our sin as our substitute and purified us by his own blood. So in the Exodus, God's people are afraid and they should be afraid. They can't approach God. In the new covenant, because of Christ, because of his mediatory work as he marched up Mount Calvary, we do not need to be afraid in that technical sense because when God sees us, he does not see us fundamentally as sinner. He sees us as, he sees his own son. He sees us as saint. So we get to, then in light of that, climb up the mountain and meet with God. Not, not, not Sinai, not Calvary, but what Jonathan read earlier, a far greater mountain, a mountain where God himself dwells, Mount Zion. Let me just reread just a, a portion of what Jonathan read. For you have not come, this is Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 18, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of the trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken, right? That's, that's Exodus, right? You haven't come to that mountain. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, it was so terrifying what was in the sight of Moses that he was said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to another mountain to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And then if you go down to verse 24, he says, you have come, you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new and better covenant and to the sprinkling of blood and speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And then if you just go a few verses down to verse 28, we read this. Therefore, in light of Jesus being our ultimate and great mediator, the one Moses was pointing to. We read this. Therefore, 
Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. You see, the kingdom in the Old Testament of Israel, it was shaken. But there's a better one, a greater covenant. And this, and let us, in light of that greater covenant, offer God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So God, God is a consuming fire. But we don't need to be afraid anymore. We don't need to tremble as God's people trembled before Mount Sinai. God has freed his people from their sin through the mediator, Jesus Christ. And having done that, he then brings us to himself, restoring that original relationship that God, that God had with his people in Eden. That's what our text is pointing us to. God doesn't just free us. God frees us so that he can bring us to himself, so that we can have a relationship and deepen our relationship and worship God. Because one of the blessings of the new covenant is that the, the law wouldn't be written on stone. The new covenant would be, it'd be written on our hearts such that we could be empowered to worship God in light of it. Well, much more could be said. This is like, there's so much amazing theology in these two sections. If you have curiosities or if you want to talk more, I'd love to talk more about these two chapters. But that being said, I think it's a good point to just close and pray and sing because all of us are pilgrims in a sense. We're all marching somewhere. Thankfully, for the church of Jesus Christ, we're marching towards God. And we don't have to be afraid. God, um, we are so grateful. We are so grateful that, that we come to you through Jesus Christ, in his name, through his blood, by his power, and we don't have to be afraid. We are so thankful that you set your identity on us. An identity that was not won by our effort, but won by Christ. And we thank you that, that one of the identities of your church is of a worshiping church. So Lord, we pray that our words, our, 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 our thoughts, and our deeds would all be worshipful to you. Would all give you glory. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.